Um, okay, so my name is Stephen Ramsey. I'm one of the three teaching. Uh, the others, the other two are Jeff and Becca Benny. Um, and I, so I was originally supposed to go next week and do all of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, you know, there's not much in there, so you can just kind of breeze <laughs> through it real fast. And then, and then I switched to this week, and and then Becca was going to take next week, and then Becca also handed off the Sermon on the Mount to her dad. So no one wants to do the Sermon on the Mount. So maybe we'll just skip it. It's it's not like it's the book of Leviticus or anything, but whatever. All right, so we got Matthew 3 and 4 this week. Let's stand and do the Shema. Um, we say this to dedicate our hearts to God so that we can listen to the words in a new way and be changed from this moment forward. Say it together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Amen. Alright, you can sit down. We talked last week about how Jesus is the new Moses. And in Deuteronomy 18, God says... I'm going to send another prophet to you who is like Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth. Matthew is a very Jewish gospel written to a Jewish audience, and that is and that is how um, that's how it helps to understand Matthew. And what we also talked about in Matthew chapter two, uh, if you look close, it says. Jesus' name one time, but it refers to him as the child, I think nine times in the chapter. Why is this? If you remember, um, you can listen to the class online too, to, but I'll do the brief um, overview that Moses, remember when he's pulled out of the water, out of the basket, in Hebrew his name, Moses, means drawn out or pulled out. But if you remember, it was an Egyptian princess who pulled him out. So she wouldn't name him in Hebrew, she would name him in Egyptian. And in Egyptian, his name Moses means the child. Very plain, very normal. He's one of us. He's not born a hero. Moses is one of the people. Jesus, as the Son of God, is one of us. He's the child. And I think that that is what Matthew is trying to get across. Now, what we see in the first few chapters of Matthew is that Jesus' life takes the same pathway as Israel does through the book of Exodus. Starting with that Jesus, like Moses, is born under a terrible and genocidal ruler, Herod. This time it's Herod, not Pharaoh. The women who care for the child are courageous and stand in opposition to this powerful ruler. It's one of the it's maybe the first biblical instance I think of nonviolent resistance to a bad ruler. Then Jesus is taken into Egypt and then he is taken out. Uh, Matthew refers to the verse out of Egypt I have called my son. Jesus then goes into the wilderness He's baptized at the river, similar to Israel leaving Egypt, going into the wilderness, getting to the Reed Sea, and then crossing through it to the other side of the wilderness. 
And in that wilderness they are tested. Um, and we're going to look at that closely today. Um, Jesus also takes the same pathway. We'll look at that. And then Israel finally comes to Mount Sinai to get a word from God. To get the teaching or the Torah, which means teaching or instruction. Our Bibles say law, but really it should be teaching or instruction. Israel comes to Mount Sinai to get instruction and teaching from God. In Matthew, he presents it as the Sermon on the Mount. So that's kind of, that's kind of the framework that Matthew is going through. In Matthew chapter 3, we get introduced to someone who I think intentionally lives in the shadow of Jesus, John the Baptist. He wanted it that way. It was very, it was very wise of him to, to choose that path. But what sadly I, what's sad for us, I think, is we don't spend enough time trying to learn who John the Baptist was. Because he was an incredible person. And, and we'll get into a few points on that. I wish we could do a whole semester on John the Baptist and Elijah. John the Baptist is preaching in the wilderness, saying, Repent, the kingdom of heaven has come near, or has come very close. And repent means to do a 180, to turn around. John's trying to say, God is so close to you, but you're going to have to change your ways, your thought processes, how you do things. You're going to have to do a full transformation to get the benefit of this closeness with God. Matthew points out, about John, this was he who was spoken of through Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Okay, reference to Isaiah 40. We're going to do some close looking at Isaiah 40 in a couple slides. One thing uh, to hit on here is that the wilderness is a big deal in the Bible. And we see it again and again, the wilderness or the desert. Now the sages or the ancient rabbis said there are three lands in the Torah. The first is Egypt and that's Pharaoh's land. And then there is Canaan and God gave Canaan to Israel. But there's a third space that takes up even more time in, and, and really most of the time um, in the Torah and really in the whole Bible and that is the desert or the wilderness and the desert is God's land. So God leads Israel to the promised land but they first have to spend a significant amount of time in the desert. It's interesting that the majority of the promised land is this desert, or as uh, God describes it in Deuteronomy, this vast and terrible wilderness. And there's something we get from the wilderness in life that we can't get from the comfort of the city and the establishment where we have a lot of things going for us and we're comfortable and life is set up. When you go to the desert, these things are stripped away from you. And there's nothing to rely on but God. And the whole time, the whole question is, how is God going to come through and give me life today? That's, that's the lesson of the wilderness. 70% of the promised land is the wilderness or the desert. 
I might say the majority, the same kind of percentage is life itself. Right now for us, the majority of our life is in the desert. And we have to question ourselves and we have to question God. And we've got to wrestle with, can I come through for myself? I've got to learn that I can't. And in the desert, God takes us there to learn that He will provide for us and strengthen us and change us. This is, um, I got to go to Israel summer of 2017, last summer. This is from Masada, which is on the, um, near the Dead Sea. So these are pictures of the Judean wilderness. Um, John was not far from here, but you can see this is, I mean, it's, there's no green. How does God give life in a place like this? Here's a picture of the wilderness in the Negev. This is on the, um, the southern or the southwestern side of Israel. Again, the wilderness. This is where Abraham, Moses, Elijah, and others spend a significant amount of their life. In Exodus 13, we read that God chose to lead the people through the wilderness instead of taking a direct path to the promised land, an easy straight shot, God leads them through the wilderness. Now to circle back to Isaiah 40, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. In the New King James, which is mostly what I read, I do the NIV as well, the colon, look where the colon is, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now I'm not a, just a I couldn't do this with every single verse in the Bible where there's grammatical, I mean errors, that change the meaning of the verses. But in this particular verse, why is this wrong? The colon is in the wrong place. And some, some versions have it right, including the NIV here. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. See, it's subtle, but it changes it, right? So it's not John the Baptist saying, hey, I'm out here in the wilderness and I'm preparing the way of the Lord. Instead, John the Baptist is saying, the wilderness is where the work of God is done and the path for His people is laid out. And that's what Isaiah is also trying to say. The rest of, or some other verses surrounding this in Isaiah 40. The voice of one calling... In the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Another, another place, I think, where this is um, pretty fascinating. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So what's the status of the very beginning? How does it start? It starts like this. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. One cultural thing to note when you're reading the Gospels is that the Jewish people, including the fishermen in Galilee, viewed the water as chaos. This is the place of chaos, the abyss, where there is no life. Similar to Genesis 
chapter 1 verse 2. But this is really a desert image right here to start. And it really works like this in Deuteronomy 32. In a desert land, he, God, found him in a barren and howling waste. He shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft. The picture you should get in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 is that God is like an eagle hovering over creation covering it, protecting it, because there's potential for new life here. This is, this is the good soil that the seed grows from. This, this nest of new life, of baby birds in, in an egg, ready to hatch into new life. This is what the Spirit of God does for us now, and this is the picture of Genesis chapter 1. The eagle hovering over its nest of new and young life, it's really not much different if you think about the picture of Israel under Pharaoh being held down like a beach ball under water, ready to burst into new life, but they weren't ready yet, so God protects them. And then He leads them into the wilderness so that they can blossom into new life, into God's people. Okay, circle back, Matthew chapter 3. Again, this is, I think, the picture of Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 right here. Okay, the wilderness. What's also interesting about the wilderness um, is the, the letters of it and how it ties to God and the Word. The letters um, for wilderness in Hebrew, uh, MDBR, Midbar, very similar to the key letters for the word word, DBR. And it's the same key letters for the words temple and sheepfold. So the temple, even though it's a place in the city where God dwells, temple is really a desert image. And again, we go to the desert to get a word from God. And it, in, it is in the desert that God strengthens us and renews us and gives us life in a way that we cannot get for ourselves. In our times of suffering and uncertainty and pain, where we realize we don't have control over things that we maybe thought we did, we find out that God can take care of us in a way that we can't, and we find out that we have strength that we didn't know that we had. In the wilderness and challenges of our lives, God also gives us uh, the ability to grow and change. Now, Jesus is the new Moses, but John is the new Elijah. Matthew points us in that direction when he says that his clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. In 2 Kings chapter 1, there's this great story where Ahaziah, one of the leaders, He's fallen, he's fallen and he can't get up. Okay, so he sends some of his messengers to the false god to figure out what he needs to do and is he going to survive. And along the way, 
because of prompting of an angel, Elijah runs out and meets the messengers before they get to the false god. And Elijah tells him, basically, that yes, you're going to die. You're not going to survive this incident. And then they come back. He doesn't tell him his name. They come back to Ahaziah and say, we met this guy and this is what he said. And, and Ahaziah says, okay, what was he wearing? If he didn't tell, tell you his name, what was he wearing? And they say, well, he had a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. And Ahaziah goes, mm, that's Elijah the Tishbite. Ahaziah knows who it is by what he's wearing. And Matthew points us that John the Baptist is, in a sense, Elijah come again. Now, what's also fascinating is John preaches this pretty fiery message, right? About, you know, the axe has already laid root to the tree. The, you know, the fire is burning. I mean, it's a very harsh and fiery message. And that's not easy for us to hear. Um, you know, if, can you imagine if we got to church next Sunday, Josh is preaching, and he's like, look, a lot of you are doing horrible things, and, and there's bad things coming from you, for you. You can expect that. Like, life's going to be hard, and after this, the pain that you're going to feel from... And we'd be like, whoa, dude, <laughs> calm down a little bit. Like, we'll try to change things, but what do you... Where's this passion and fire coming from? Well, John the Baptist, this was his M.O. This is what he did. And people left the city and the towns to go into the hot wilderness and the desert to get lessons and teachings from John. Why does he preach this message? His understanding, it looks like, comes from Malachi chapter 4, which I, th I think this is the last chapter of the Old Testament. So this is leads right into John's time. In Malachi chapter 4, it says, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So John is taking his cues from the Scripture in this message and trying to help and push people to a point where when Jesus comes along they will be able to hear his message and his teaching. Hey Steve. Yeah. It, that's interesting because you would think that if he was kind of gloom and doom that people wouldn't go with him. Right. Yeah. I know. That's uh, Yeah. And, and you would they have to make an effort to get out there too. Wow. You know. It's not just Hey, this is what I do every Sunday. I go to, I go deep into the desert to hear a guy preach a hard message about how I'm not living well. It's it's a real challenge, right? It's pretty. He's wearing camel hair clothes. I mean, that can't be comfortable. It's not comfortable, right? And it's burning hot. Yeah. Um, oh, there's so much on John. I wish I could launch into if I finish in time. Maybe we can circle back on it. But yeah, that's a big. The camel hair. There's a lot. There's a lot to the camel hair. Have to be a prophet. It is. This, yeah, this, this is a hard life. Anything else while we're here? I, I'll keep going, but I can pause for a second. Any other thoughts and comments? All right. Um, the Hebrew Bible, which, uh, which we call the Old Testament, 
is broken into three parts. Um, and it's called the Tanakh, which is really, they mash together the first three letters of the three parts of the Old Testament. The Torah is the first five books. Um, the Nevi'im is the prophets. And the Ketuvim is the writings and the books of wisdom. And that's how they get the word Tanakh. Okay, three parts of the scripture. And Jews have an understanding that the entire Hebrew Bible, all three parts of it, would point to and testify to who the Messiah was. And if you remember the Jews in Jesus' time, and Jesus himself, John the Baptist, there's this huge emphasis on you make sense of life through the Scripture. You don't have opinions and ideas and convictions that are vaguely and loosely based on the Scripture. You don't have ideas and opinions and habits that are loosely based on parts of the Scripture. You try to live your whole life from the text. Everything that happens, you try to make sense of it through the Scripture. Now, I, I think this is a challenge to us because we, I, I think, it's easy to have opinions and habits and ideas that they sort of come from the Bible. I think a verse says something like this somewhere. I think that's a challenge for us because, again, we we gravitate to other things and our education system in the states is based on other things than just the Bible. The next level challenge is that we like to shortcut to the New Testament as Christians and we like to take a shortcut to Jesus or to Paul but Jesus and Paul couldn't shortcut to each other. They totally 100% relied on the Hebrew Bible to know what to do, and how to think, and how to feel, and how to handle the circumstances of life. So, how does, or how do we see the Old Testament, all three parts of it, testify to who Jesus is? I think we see it in the baptism scene. Jesus was baptized. He went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending upon him like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now, look close. The heaven was open. A lot of times you see the Gospel writers, when they, when they write something about Jesus, they're not trying to come up with something new themselves. They're trying to say, the, the best way I can explain this to you is look at the Old Testament. I can't say it well enough and I don't, I don't even want to try to say something better than what God has already said. So when we get to these words, heaven was opened and the Spirit of God descending upon him, I think Matthew is pointing us to Isaiah 64 where the prophet says, Oh, that you would tear open the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue and we need to be saved. 
I mean, does this not say, does that not say a lot about what John is doing? Matthew doesn't have to come up with something new. He, he puts a quick little blurb in, I think, to point us to Isaiah 64. That the heavens would be ripped open and that the Spirit of God would come down and change us because we need to be saved. Okay, so that's, that's one instance. But how does the whole Bible point to Jesus? Well, I think God, in a very unique way, relies on His own book. You are my son. He has kind of these three lines right here uh, that's very tight, and they're good words on their own. But there's a message behind the words. In Psalm chapter 2, it uh, talks about, you know, you are my son, about the Messiah. It uses these words about this new Messiah that will come and be the king over all the nations. And this Messiah says, you are my son. So we've got something from the Ketuvim, or the, wis the wisdom writings testifying to who Jesus is. God then says, whom I love. In Genesis chapter 22, God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and take him to Mount Moriah to be sacrificed. So we've got the Torah testifying to who Jesus is. So we've got two parts of, of the Hebrew Bible testifying to Jesus. I might also mention uh, for some, I think, very powerful Bible trivia. In Genesis chapter 22, that is the first time the word love is used in the Bible. And the rabbis have an understanding that the first time a word is used in the Scripture, it sets the tone and is the most pure way for that word to be used for the rest of the Bible. So love has a unique background and context to a father loving a son and the willingness to sacrifice their son. Sounds very much like, obviously, John chapter 3, verse 16. Okay, then God says, You are my son, whom I love. In you I am well pleased. In Isaiah chapter 42, the prophets also testified um, here in Isaiah 42. This is about the chosen servant of the Lord in whom God delights. All three parts of the Hebrew Bible testify to who Jesus is. Even God doesn't try to come up with a new way of saying things. God relies on the Old Testament too. Again, an interesting challenge for us to not take shortcuts to the New Testament, but to understand life, to draw strength from, to draw wisdom from the Old Testament. All of it. God quotes His own book. Okay, now we're in Matthew chapter 4, and I think we are running out of time. Yeah, I don't know how they're going to do the whole Sermon on the Mount in one class, but that's their challenge. Um, okay, so Jesus, after the baptism, He goes into the wilderness again, the hot desert, for 40 days and doesn't eat. It says after 40 days, He was hungry. And I want to be like, Matthew, we're not like that dumb, okay? We would, <laughs> we're hungry after four hours. Like a lot of us right now are thinking about, you know, lunch. But 
What you see here is that Satan comes to Jesus and uses God's words to throw Jesus off. And Jesus has to correctly interpret God's words to know what to do. And it is a common rabbinic practice to answer questions by just quoting Scripture. Just, boom, immediately you just quote a verse. That's, that's your solution, if you will, or your response to the circumstances of life. What you also see in the temptation scenes is that testing and temptation are blurry lines in life. And sometimes we're not going to know if we're being tested or we're being tempted. But either way, in the wilderness, God is with us and strengthening us. In the first temptation, Satan um, is trying to get him to change stones to bread because he's hungry. And what you see in most of these, temptation, these temptations... Satan will say, if you are the Son of God. It's like he's very immediately and quickly responding to the baptism scene where God says, yes, you are the Son of God. And Satan's saying, yeah, let's, let's test that. Let's test what that means more than if it's true. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 8, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. If you remember, after they go through the Red Sea, they're in the wilderness, they're hungry, they're complaining. This is Israel. And God gives them manna enough for one day at a time. And God says in Exodus 16, it's not totally so that they'll have food to eat, but it's really a testing ground to see if my people will listen to me and if they will listen to instructions. More of Deuteronomy 8 says, which is where Jesus quotes from, God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you. Again, this is, this is life, right? The 70% of the promised land is the wilderness. 70% of our life is the wilderness. And it's when we are humbled and tested. God allowed them to hunger, yet He fed them that He might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Temptation 2. I mean, boom, boom, at least it... I, I don't know. I wonder if Satan tempted him throughout that time or if, it, if this was just like boom, 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 like all in one day or all in a week's time. I don't know. Satan took him to the highest point of the temple. And he quotes from Psalm 91, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Basically, he leaves out some things when he quotes from the Scripture. It's a challenge to us that we've got to know the Scripture well to be able to respond. Jesus does. He says, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. In fact, Psalm 91 says the opposite. That, that Satan will be defeated. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the lion and the serpent. So Satan's using words before the part where it says he's going to lose. I think that's fascinating. Deuteronomy 6, which also is where the Shema comes from, 
You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God. The last temptation, Satan takes him to a high mountain and says he will give him all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus says, get away, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Also coming from Deuteronomy 6, again where the Shema is, so there's a deep connection, I think, to listening to God and loving God with all your heart. It says, You shall fear the Lord your God and serve Him and take oaths in His name. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are all around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you. What I would say is this, the Old Testament matters to Jesus, so it should matter to us. Being disciples of Jesus means we want to be like Him. We don't just want to worship Him. We want to be like Him. This is what John the Baptist is trying to say. When he says repent, he's not necessarily saying, hey, worship Him because He's the Son of God. I think what he's saying is, if he's calling us to repent and to change directions, is he's saying, if you want, I want, John's saying, I want to be like my cousin, Jesus the rabbi from Nazareth. I want you to be like Jesus the rabbi from Nazareth not just worship him and saying he's the king and the son of God no our challenge our duty in life as disciples is to become like Jesus and Jesus was obsessed with and lived from the Old Testament if it matters to Jesus it should matter to us and lastly the wilderness way of life in the scripture is Israel had to go through the wilderness. John also had to go through the wilderness. In Luke, at the end of chapter 1 of Luke, it says that John lived in the wilderness and grew strong in spirit. Jesus also had to go through the wilderness, and in our life, we also must go through the wilderness times of life. Okay, that's all that I prepared. What other what thoughts, questions, ideas do you have, or disagreements even? That's that's fine too. Anything? All right, awesome. <laughs> I guess you agree. <laughs> Yeah, it's different. It's different stuff too. I mean, I know it's. I know it's kind of. You know, I, I know that some of the stuff. I mean, I didn't grow up hearing this stuff. You know, I have spent time trying to learn and read and try. I mean, a lot of it is Jewish too. I think that's that's the other thing is, you you have to learn some Jewish stuff to know Jesus because he he was a Jew. And if you only it's. I mean, it, this might be a little extreme, but maybe I think it's practically effective that to approach Jesus only in a Christian way means you're going to miss out on a lot of stuff because Jesus wasn't a Christian, right? He was a Jew. He was born and raised and died a Jew. And I, you know, it's... Wilderness, if you look at the story, there's a lot of times, probably more of it, where they doubted, where they defied where they were just plain old lost. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the wilderness isn't all 
roses where we find God. Sometimes the wilderness is where we we wander, we defy, and we question. A lot, a lot more often than you know, manna came at night. You know, once a day. The rest of the day, we still had to worry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the people com- got tired of the manna too, and then started complaining. Once they had it for a while, they thought, "As it's getting old, you know." Yeah. Again, that's, this is. I feel like this is a lot of life now for for us, for me. Is God provides? We think it's great, but if it if it happens, it gets a little old, and we think we start complaining again, and we get lost again, and we have to continually repent. We have to continually turn back because God is so close. But we get so locked in on our own ways and processes that we have to we have to keep tweaking our direction back to God. To me it's encouraging the seventy percent of our time is in the wilderness because a lot of times I feel like I'm in the wilderness. But then if you look at it as a time that you're growing or you're learning then that puts a totally different light on. Yeah. Because so, yeah. I, I fight in the wilderness. I mean, I don't want to be in the wilderness. Right. So, yep. I, and that's encouraging. Yep. Yep, I agree. And the wilderness is the place where God prepared them for the promised land. They right. They couldn't go straight there like they wanted to. They had to learn and grow and become become the people who could live in the promised land and yeah. they have been in the wilderness. That's right. And all of Deuteronomy is Moses saying, don't forget what you've learned out here. Because if you forget it, the real temptation is not you don't have enough and so you complain to God to provide. The real temptation is when you get in a place and you've got a lot of stuff and you haven't even earned it, right? These cities were built before you got here. These wells were dug. These olive trees were planted. Before you got here, this is a gift to you. And now you've got all this stuff, and now you're comfortable, and you've got plenty of food. You don't need manna from heaven anymore. And Moses is saying the real temptation is when you've got plenty of stuff, you forget to rely on God. And in the wilderness, you have to. And basically, he's saying, he even says in Deuteronomy, like, you're going to forget. I know you're going to. And it's, I mean, I think about myself. Like, I, when things are good and easier, it is. You can't help it. You almost can't. It's almost too much human nature. You can't help it. So we almost constantly have to be pulled back into the wilderness to learn that. To learn that you can't learn it once. You got to learn it again and again and again. Um, and and I've heard some rabbis or yeah some rabbinic commentators say that Israel, the the forty years in the wilderness was not so much punishment. They weren't ready for it. It they needed it. And so that's that's just what had to happen to prepare them. Yep. Thank you for being here. Y'all have a great week. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.